This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We do want to talk about the weekend because what a weekend it was for President Trump. China, North Korea might even call it a whirlwind weekend of diplomacy. Craig Gordon is Washington Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News, joining us from our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. I don't know about you, Craig. I'm sure you were like glued to your phone, checking in, you know, in terms of everything that was going on uh, and listening to your team and talking to your team. But I, I kind of was... I feel like I'm a little disappointed. I'm kind of surprised at some of the euphoria that we've seen in the financial markets. Break it down. How did this weekend stack up for the president? Sure. I mean, uh, if you're looking for sort of gestures that, uh, you know, the uh, motion that appears to be progress, whether it's actually progress or not, I guess he would get an A. Um, You know, the China talks are restarted again. Uh, after being kind of on ice for a little while there, and the North Korea talks about denuclearization, also restarted again after also sort of being on ice. But in terms of actual concrete movement, very, very little. All he really did was reset the clock in both cases to a situation where we were maybe a couple of months ago, where we, you know, we didn't really move any of these things. Trump didn't really move anything forward. He just kind of got them back to a square they were already in two months ago before he, in both cases, kind of blew them up. So, mm. you know, if you're looking for sort of optics, I, I guess he can say he, he had a good uh, had a good weekend uh, in that part of the world. But in terms of uh, sheer real progress, very, very little accomplished. Well, I do wonder if this was all about cameras and shots and, you know, thinking about the 2020 reelection. Yeah, I mean, you know, everything uh, we I feel like we as journalists can now officially put everything in the frame of the 2020 election (laughs) because Donald Trump stood in Orlando a couple of weeks ago and, you know, declared he's running for president again. So we are in the campaign season by his own declaration. Obviously, the first Democratic debates last week also put the Democratic side, you know, we're we're fully in the hunt from now until November uh, 2020, which sure seems like an awful long time. Mm. So, yes, you know. Everything is political at this point, and, and that's just that's just the way it is. And so for Trump, I do think a lot of Americans would rather see him in a friendly way with Kim Jong-un and having a, a, a what seemed to be a pleasant you know, conversation. Um, that That is something Americans, you know, they, they want their president to be liked. They want their president to be engaged with other world leaders, not always in a bellicose way, but in a more, you know, seeming to sort of reach out a hand way. So I think there those pictures probably helped Donald Trump in the sense of he looks like a world leader doing a world leader thing on a, on a world stage. China's trickier. Um, yeah. You know, we've been, we've been talking about China for what you know really almost since the day Donald Trump took office. Right. Uh, we've was, you know Trump has slapped a bunch of tariffs on them. Uh, some of those price increases are actually starting to filter through the economy down to the level of consumers. People aren't going to be too happy about that. But as far as actually getting China to change its ways in terms of some of the you know accusations of intellectual property theft or data transfer or how American companies are allowed to do business in China, which is in a very restricted way, he's achieved nothing. And so I think for voters looking to kind of give him a give him a grade on that um that's not gonna that's not gonna go so well for him um he did get them to agree supposedly to buy some more soybeans of course farmers a big part of his constituency but I, i think on the china part he's got some real work to do to convince voters that his approach is paying off well what about though kind of i feel like backpedaling a little bit on huawei 
Yeah, and then there's that. Um, again, I think that that conversation is probably taking place a little bit over the heads of sort of average voters who are yeah. thinking about their July 4th cookouts and fireworks and all that. Fair enough. Right. Um, I will tell you who it's not over the heads of, and that is Republicans in Congress. Um, I don't know if I'm sure yeah. folks saw the tweet from Marco Rubio, who has been very hawkish on uh, on China and some of these other issues, had been, you know, kind of in Trump's camp on some of his approaches to these things, particularly his tough stance on the Huawei situation. Now he essentially accused Trump of completely backpedaling and potentially giving the Chinese government a huge victory there by allowing U.S. companies to once again sell parts to Huawei. Um, So on that one, I think you could see some more uh, restiveness among congressional Republicans who who did like it when Trump was kind of cracking down on Huawei and now feels like he's caved a little. Well, you know, what I was also surprised at this whole, just flipping from China back to North Korea, if we could for a moment, Craig, I mean, was this on the agenda? This came out as, I feel like a total surprise. I mean, we knew ultimately he was going to go there, but it is historic, right, that he actually stepped into North Korea. Sure. And again, you know, Donald Trump is a person who who does enjoy sort of theatrical gestures and yeah. seeing an American president walking on North Korean soil. You know, I've been covering this stuff a long time. It's it's a pretty breathtaking moment. Mm-hmm. I think where the critics come in uh, and, the, and the piece we, we wrote for the Bloomberg Terminal this morning points out, this is exactly what Kim Jong-un wants. Yeah. He yeah. wants to be held in the same, you know, spoken of in the same breath as the American president. He wants to be treated with that respect, elevated on on the world stage, that's fine. If that's part of your negotiating tactic to make the other guy mm-hmm. feel good about himself, sure, fine. The problem for Trump is he got nothing. He, again, all they really did agree to do was restart sort of working level talks, which, you know, should have been happening anyway. That's not, that's a, that we're still miles away from a breakthrough on that. So Kim Jong-un got a huge public relations boost. Again, looked like the world leader that he wants to be considered standing next to the American president. What did the American president get out of that? Really almost nothing. And I think a lot of foreign policy experts would say for for the president, any president to offer that sort of to Kim Jong-un, you better get something concrete in return and something very real. Trump actually got nothing. Hey, Craig, just got about 30 seconds here. So I'm wondering, I don't know, in a few months, do we have like similar conversations that we're talking North Korea again? We're talking about the U.S.-China trade war? I do think we are. This is the, both of these things are going to drag on for quite a while. We've already had two rounds of talks with North Korea that went nowhere. Yeah. China seems to be kind of stuck in the mud right now. Not clear what happened this weekend really changes that. So uh, dig in for a, a bunch of conversations about this <laughs> down the road. We certainly will. Hey, listen, always love talking with you. Craig Gordon, thank you so much. He's our Washington Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News. Joining us from our 991 studio in the nation's capital. Find him on Twitter at DCraigGordon. Well, definitely power to the people. You had a lot of protesters once again flooding the streets of Hong Kong and specifically the legislative building uh, Monday evening, Hong Kong time. Let's get an update on the situation. Our so- Sophie Kamarudin is reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us from inside the legislative chamber uh, in Hong Kong. Sophie, I know it's late your time. We really appreciate your continued reporting. Um, what's the latest on the situation and how did you actually get into the building? Well, Carol, here it is 2.30 a.m. Hong Kong time, and I am in the main chamber of the Legislative Council building where lawmakers hold their debates to determine the future of the city. We gained access to the building at the invitation of police who invited media to roam the building as they gather evidence. Uh, Strewn around me is debris. We have water bottles, hard hats, masks, umbrellas, uh, you name it, uh, in the wake of the protesters who began leaving uh, the building 
as they learned that riot police were to be deployed to the area. And that happened at about midnight. Uh, we heard and saw riot police moving into the scene with their shields, followed by vans and trucks. And it was a fairly quick uh, a clear, a clearing of the area relative to what we saw on June 12th when there was a clash um, that is being uh, the focus point uh, for calls of an independent inquiry given the government had classified that particular event as a riot. Now, that term has not been used in an official manner for today's events, although the police did condemn the actions of some radical protesters saying that rioters had gained entry to electrical building using force. And again, this scene is quite quite bizarre and very eerie to be here in the wake of what we saw today. It's been an eventful um, 24 plus hours, Carol. Well, and remarkable that they actually were inside the chamber. I mean, where do we go from here? We're now several, what, days into this protest? Um, Is it a week at least now or a couple of weeks? And, you know, it's been a month, one could say, Carol. Yeah. It's been a month. All right. So where do we go from here? And I'm curious about, you know, the timing was fascinating, Sophie, in that here we had the G20 going on over the weekend, uh, a very crucial meeting between President Xi of China and, of course, President Trump of the United States in terms of the trade war. And I do wonder about the pressures that this Hong Kong protest is putting on President Xi. Well, one of the layers of, is, of course, the extradition bill that was to mm-hmm. have uh, permitted for China to make requests um, for, uh, say, fugitives, for example, from the mainland to Hong Kong that were deemed to have uh, flouted the rules on the mainland. Now, that bill has been suspended indefinitely, but the complete withdrawal of the extradition bill was just one of five key demands by the pro-democracy movement, and that has since morphed to something larger. It has widened, uh, including the call for the uh, resignation of the chief executive, Carrie Lam, as well as for a review of electoral reform in the city, which was a key theme at the heart of the 2014 Occupy Movement, Carol. Well, what's likely to happen at this point? I mean, is there any kind of conversation going on between the protesters and members of the government? There is a gridlock, one could say. There was an attempt by the pro-democracy rally organizers and the pan-Democrat lawmakers to bring Carrie Lam to the table to uh, engage her in urgent uh, discussions, but uh, reportedly she rejected uh, that request. However, there was an official statement from the government in which they noted that today's uh, protests were deemed peaceful. Uh, They did condemn the actions of some of those uh, protesters, the ones who gained access to the electrical building. But from here on out, um, there certainly is going to be a lot of scrutiny on Carrie Lam and how she handles um, public discourse, uh, given how she is seen as part of the reason as to why these protests have escalated in the manner that they have. Um, But again, it's unclear exactly what uh, the protesters were hoping to achieve by gaining access to the LegCo building. Some parallels have been drawn to the Taiwanese movement that happened in 2014, the Sunflower uh, movement, where student-led protesters were able to occupy the legislature in Taiwan for several weeks. But that is not the case here tonight. Well, and just we've got about 45 seconds left here. I mean, you talked about the suspension of that extradition bill, and this has been certainly a main you know, point of contention here. Is there any likelihood that it will be completely withdrawn or who knows at this point? 
So we have the pro-establishment camp urging uh, Carrie Lam to officially announce the withdrawal of the bill, which, by the way, was suspended indefinitely on June 15th, given um, the uh, public outcry uh, against the extradition mm-hmm. bill. Uh, there is a natural lapse to this a bill uh, by the end of this term for the Legislative Council, right. there is a concern, some anxiety that it may be brought back in some way, shape or form. All right. Certainly um, a difficult situation. And we really do appreciate it. We know it's like the middle of the morning uh, for you over there in Hong Kong. So thank you so much, Sophie, for giving us an update because we certainly have been watching it uh, from here in the States. Sophie Kamarudin, she is reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from inside the Legislative Chamber in Hong Kong. Put your makeup on, fix your hair pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City. Well, it's been a year since I made a trip down to Atlantic City to check in on the revitalization of the city and the launch of the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino, Atlantic City. Jack Morris and Joe Gingoli uh, caught up with them. They're co-partners of the Hard Rock uh, Hotel and Casino, Atlantic City. Obviously, I, I can't say this enough. <laughs> Joining us on the phone from AC. Um, Jack and Joe, nice to talk with you. Uh, it's been a year. Tell me about the past year and how things have gone. Good afternoon. How you doing, Carol? Jack Morris here. Doing well, Jack. Doing well. So tell me about the past year, things that lived up to your expectations, things that you still want to do, uh, things that you'd like to improve. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, great. Thanks for having us. Uh, we had uh, an amazing anniversary uh, weekend at the Hard Rock. Uh, crowds were uh, were phenomenal, uh, and uh, we really... Uh, are seeing an upbeat in, uh, in Atlantic City. I think uh, if you were down there, uh, mm-hmm. you, you would see the uh, boardwalk beaches, uh, the shops, uh, real estate's on a rise down there. Sports betting uh, has uh, now been introduced to Atlantic City and doing great. So a lot of great things in Atlantic City. Joe, come on in on the conversation. What in the past year has kind of surprised you? Carol, it's, uh, look at it. it's summer at the Jersey Shore, and so... Uh, it's you know it's an exciting time in Atlantic City. I I think uh, uh, things that were a really pleasant surprise were our uh, our, our workforce programs. Uh, we opened with twenty percent of our employees as Atlantic City residents, and um, that has since risen to twenty five percent. We found a uh, viable uh, workforce, which we had hoped, and uh, it has proven out. And um, you know, with uh, partnership with uh, uh, the Department of Labor and uh, Local 54 and the industry, we are uh, we're creating jobs and opportunity. And if uh, the industry is going to be successful 12 months a year, um, we're really going to need to focus on the city and you know have our guests have an experience in our buildings, but also outside of them. Well, Joe, talk to me a little bit more about those winter months, right? That's always been tougher for any, you know, coastal town, but particularly here in the Northeast when it gets, you know, pretty cold, people aren't as likely to make the trek. Tell me what kind of, you know, business that you guys saw, people coming down to see shows. Give us a little bit of uh, kind of the the numbers, if you will, in terms of how the season was. Uh, This was our first winter open. Uh, all of our entertainment programs were were very very popular. We brought down a lot of guests on the weekends, and it's that midweek business that we have to drive, and that's all going to be about business uh, conventions and uh, getting people to come down to uh, meet their clients and customers and 
and be part of our our property uh, throughout the winter months. And uh, that's really what we're going to be focusing on is that convention business. We've been tremendously supported by all the New Jersey um, uh, organized labor, building trades, uh, AFL-CIO is going to have their convention with us next year. And uh, so now we got to reach deep into the other businesses that are in our region to get them to come down and have a good experience. Well, and I'm curious when those folks who do come down, is there a particular demographic, um, Jack or Joe? Jack, give me an idea of like, who are the folks that you're seeing come down uh, to come to the casino, come to the hotel, come to an event? And what kind of repeat business are you guys seeing? Yeah, we're seeing a number of different industries coming down, whether it's from the you know food industry, whether it's from, um, as Joe said, some of the different unions. Uh, um, but y- you have um, different industries, whether people are coming down uh, to have a convention or they having events. Uh, Lenny City is a great place. To have those events, you have uh, uh, entertainment opportunities, and, and, and people like the uh, the opportunity to uh, have the uh, entertainment. You don't have to go all the way to Vegas, and you get uh, uh, right what you can get uh, that many miles away here in New Jersey. So people are seeing you don't uh, you don't have to travel to to get that uh, that type of quality, uh, whether it's at our. Uh, um, our arena mm-hmm. uh, with the shows that we're putting on. Uh, you know, the Jersey Boys are there. We had Kinky Boots, so you're you're getting theater shows. Right. Uh, you're getting main events. We had Tim McGraw this weekend. We've had some uh, top uh, top performers, and uh, it's a great venue to see it in. So, um, lots of great things happening uh, on our property and in Atlantic City. Well, you know, and listen, you know, and we talked about this when I was was down there with you guys. I mean, what's interesting is that there are people listening who are going to say, listen, we've been trying to revitalize Atlantic City forever. What's different, Joe, this time around? What what signs have you seen in the past 12 months that says, all right, something's staying, something's sticking, it's going to be kind of more, more broader based and maybe, you know, a revitalization that will stick around? Well, you know, what I'm seeing is, is hope in the, the people that live there that there really is some opportunity here for them. Uh, the lieutenant governor is there, you know, several times a month. Uh, she, she heads up the executive council, which is a new concept in Atlantic City where it's industry and, and, um, and, and people from the community bringing their issues up and then getting them solved. Uh, the community policing just started. A whole lot of new police officers are out there uh, in the neighborhoods. Uh, we are starting, uh, uh, Jack, myself, with the full support of the Hard Rock and the Seminole Tribe of Florida, mm-hmm. a uh, diversionary program for youth who you know, have their first uh, uh, contact with police. And when the police officers feel that uh, possibly this could be their last with some help, uh, we have them included in a diversionary program where they're working with the police, the prosecutors, mm-hmm. the folks from the Hard Rock um, and uh, in their community, and they'll get their record expunged and become eligible for uh, the workforce uh, development program. So there's some things that where the industry is now reaching into the community that are different uh, than it's been done before, and it's resonating. So um, either of you, Jack or Joe, um, or Joe, you know, what are we going to see in the next year from you guys? And just got about 40 seconds. 
I think you're going to continue to see um, Hard Rock and others uh, bring uh, uh, solid entertainment to the city. I think you're going to continue to see job growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are going to want to be in Atlantic City for uh, for all the right reasons. Um, Joe, what do you think? I think it's going to be a combination of a lot of very small things in the community that are going to add up to be a lot. The milling and paving of the roads, the traffic lights being timed, the opportunity for job programs. Uh, We now have a fully funded workforce development program. Right. I think you're going to see a a lot. And I think what we're also starting to see is how our industry interfaces with the community is going to be changed because it's good for business. All right, got to leave it up there. Jack Morris, Joe Gingoli, co-partners at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City, joining us on the phone from AC, New Jersey. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Can you meet me halfway? Meet me halfway. So as you know, on Friday we wrapped up the month of June, so halfway through the trading year here in 2019. Let's get some thoughts on where we are, where we might be going. Lori Heinel is Deputy Global Chief Investment Officer at State Street Global Advisors. She joins us on the phone from Boston. Lori, nice to have you back here. Um, Wow. (laughs) Six months in, six months to go. Who knows where we may go? I feel like this is once again the most hated rally that we've seen in equity markets. Talk to me. You've got your mid-year global market outlook uh, and strategy notes out. Tell me a little bit about, as you look back, what the trade tells you and what the climate tells you. Sure. Look, we still think that this bull has a little further to run, uh, but it's not going to be without its challenges. I mean, clearly uh, getting a little bit of good news over the weekend out of uh, trade has been a catalyst for the most recent leg up here. Uh, But we do think that the consumer continues to be in pretty good shape, particularly here in the U.S. Uh, Unemployment is low. Inflation is low. Uh, There's still a pretty reasonable backdrop for uh, the U.S. economy to keep chugging along. All right. What specifically, though? Like, I mean, the weak job report didn't worry you. If, what if we get another weak job report come Friday? Well, it depends on what you mean by week. I mean, certainly we're unlikely to see the 200,000 plus prints every month like we had earlier in this cycle, but that's not what's necessary at this stage. So if we start to have prints that are somewhere in the, you know, high, uh, you know, five digits to 100,000 jobs, that actually is enough to absorb the pent-up demand for employment. So we think that you have to sort of recalibrate what kind of growth you're going to see at this uh, point in the cycle, but we actually did upgrade our U.S. GDP numbers just a bit to two. 2.3% for 2019 on the back of what we saw first quarter as well as what we're observing uh, quarter two uh, before we even get GDP numbers coming out. Lori, what about the the purchasing managers indexes that we saw across the world? Uh, Asia, Europe, factory activities shrank in the month of June. U.S. showed kind of meager growth, you know, and a global measure pointed to a second straight contraction. That's the first time that we've seen that since 2012. Yeah. No, look, we're not saying we don't have a global synchronized slowdown, but what we are saying is that we're unlikely to see a recession in the next sort of 12 to 18 months. And we think there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, certainly the manufacturing sector is seeing quite a bit of uh, contraction, and we saw that back in 2016. But if you look at services, uh, they're actually continuing to do quite well, not just in the U.S., but in other geographies. And there, again, it's it's a bit of a this kind of conundrum, because on the one hand, you have businesses that have pulled back on 
on their investments. So 2018 was a pretty good year, and now 2019 is not. And yet you still have the consumer being quite optimistic. Sentiment is good. Uh, lower rates will actually help housing, things of that nature. So we do think that there is a lot of, um, you know, could, could be a lot of uncertainty out there. Yeah. But we think that on balance, uh, the U.S. continues to have a pretty good 2019. All right. So then where as investors are you suggesting everybody kind of allocate some money? Yeah, so we're we're still positive on risk assets. We like equities. Again, not as uh, much of an overweight as we would have had coming into this year because we have been taking some money off the table as we've seen the kind of you know double-digit returns year-to-date. Uh, we still favor the U.S., but here again, uh, a much smaller overweight than we would have had six months ago. Uh, we started to put a little bit more money into some other asset classes, like we put a small position into gold, for example. Oh and then we're trying to be a little bit more defensive, so trying to find those places is where we think there's still pretty good relative value, uh, low volatility stocks, uh, perhaps in some cases some value-oriented securities. What do you think are the kind of the riskiest uh, components out there when you look at the market environment? Is it still U.S.-China trade? I mean, even though there was some enthusiasm certainly among the equity trade, we've seen that pair back pretty dramatically over the course of today's trading day. So, you know, there's a lot still yet to be worked out. So what are the risks here for investors? There are plenty of things on the geopolitical stage that should give investors cause for concern, and trade is just one of those. I mean, clearly some of the concerns we've had in the Middle East, uh, you know, kind of ongoing flashpoints in you know various uh, countries around the world, uh, notably Korea, those continue to be things that we're worried about. But I think that the big worry that the market had at the end of last year, i.e. the Fed choking off the recovery too quickly, that one has definitely been put to the side. And, and not only has the U.S. Fed uh, indicated a willingness to be a lot more accommodative, but you're seeing a lot more um, you know, kind of dovish stance from central, central bankers around the world. Okay. So in terms of, you know, speaking of central bankers, right, we've really seen certainly, uh, you know, a move towards a much easier stance here, it feels like globally for, for many of the developed uh, central banks here. For the Fed, do you think, I think the markets are expecting something come July. Is it a done deal or do you think we have to wait? So we still think that it's not a done deal. I mean, certainly the market seems to be pricing in 100% at this stage in time, but we still believe that the Fed will be true to its word. They've indicated really two things. One is that they're going to be data dependent, and if the data doesn't um, you know, encourage them for a move, then they won't make that move. But the other thing is that they've also started to look at their forecasts a little differently, and I don't mean GDP forecasts, but what the sort of equilibrium rate should be, and they've lowered that. So that potentially gives them some room to maneuver and potentially cut. We do think that they'll cut about 50 basis points this year, but we think that June will go only if the data suggests there's a lot more softening here. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Hey, Lori, nice to check in with you. Lori Heinel, she's Deputy Global Chief Investment Officer at State Street Global Advisors, joining us uh, on this Monday on the phone from Boston. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
All right, it is time for the drive to the close. We've just got about 12 minutes left in today's trading session. And taking a look at the equity averages, we did see a rally out of the gate this morning. Optimism uh, among investors, thanks to the G20 summit and looking like the U.S. and China will continue talking about uh, their trade deals. All right, let's talk about the markets, if I may. Ben Benish is co-portfolio manager at Pictet Asset Management, based in London, spending some days here in the United States. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio New York. Ben, by the way, co-manages the AMG Managers Pictet International Fund, which is up more than 16% this year, beating the majority of funds in the category. Nice to have you here. A little bit of a whirlwind that you're having here in the United States. Tell me a little bit about the market environment. Tell me, actually, let's start. U.S.-China. Should investors be enthusiastic about what happened at the G20? They should view it with some degree of skepticism. I mean, history has shown, at least recent history has shown, that we don't really know what's happening on the yeah. geopolitical side and things are susceptible to change. Not much changed. Not much like has really changed. I think on both parts there's a degree of caution as to what, what the real intent and meaning of, of, of this agreement is. But on the margin, for sure, it's, it's good, especially with regards to the Huawei news, which seems to be something which is set in, set in a degree of stone. I mean, Ben, is it one of those things that just didn't get worse, so that's a good thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, we need to frame the size of, of the problem as well. A lot of, we feel that a lot of this discussion on trade, although it's very meaningful, was always going to be quite manageable. You know, net trade between China and the U.S. is $650 billion or so. A worst-case scenario might have been something like 25% tariffs on the, whole, on the whole lot. That is manageable versus the size of these two giant economies that we're talking about. So, yes, it would have been a disruption. Yes, it could have hurt global supply chains to a degree. But it was something which would have been managed. And we actually saw it with Micron and their numbers versus Huawei. You know, Micron were able to sell to Huawei. Right. Able to, and so it, these things have a way of working themselves out. They should be viewed with a pinch of salt. Well, that's interesting that you say that, but I do think there is some nervousness. You know, we have still yet to get Congress to sign off on the trade agreement between the United States and Mexico. I mean, I am wondering, as you travel around the United States and you're talking to investors and clients, as you go back to London, you know, what's top of mind? What's at, you know, on investors' minds at this point? Yeah, people are worried about the geopolitical Situation. Seriously there. worried. Concerned. Seriously, yeah. genuinely worried. And in, in Europe, it really hits home to, to a significant degree. You know, whether you look at Italy or you look at Australia or you look at my home, the, the UK, the, the discrepancy between the top 10% and, and the rest has led to very tangible changes in policy in, in the UK, particularly you know, with Brexit. So it, it's, it's hurting us in a, in a very real sense. And I think to a large degree, this trade discussion is really more symptomatic of those broader sociological issues more so than anything else. Well, and I do wonder, too, if you know, this is going to lead to some long-term significant changes in terms of the relationship between developed trading partners. Or do you say, go back to the grain of salt, take it all with a grain of salt. Do you think ultimately that everybody does realize we're interconnected and you can't just push back and turn back everything? I sincerely hope so. Yeah. (laughs) Um, If you look at kind of law of comparative advantage going back to old economic theory it makes sense for countries to specialize in what what they can do better than the rest and to trade to trade accordingly going back would not be a good thing but we've been there in the past i mean if you flash back to the 1930s <laughs> post 1929 stock market crash you had the smoot hawley tariffs right and and you know right. you're going all the way back and obviously 
you know the long-term outcome there and whether that led to World War II or not, I, I wouldn't hazard a guess as to sort of something like that. But we've been through periods of turmoil right. which are worse than this before and come out stronger on the other side. So it makes sense to trade. It makes sense. And companies are more and more flexible than they ever have been with regards to how they work around those those situations. Well, talk to us about your fund that you co-manage. And as I mentioned, it was up, I think, about 16%, almost 17% so far this year. Um, tell me a little bit about any of the moves that you've been making, any positions you've been adding to. I know one of the names, um, I guess, that you like is Fanuc. Exactly, yeah. So Fanuc is is quite a notorious company. It's a Japanese company which, which focuses on the robotics yeah. and markets. So we like businesses where... The growth in the business is not necessarily contingent on a cycle, but more so on kind of strong secular trends. And when it comes to robotics, the trend is quite quite clear. And they're a huge player when it they comes. Are the, they have 60% global market yeah. share in what's known as the numerical controller, the brain behind behind a robot. So sophisticated, the smart part of it. The smart part of it, but a small part of the overall cost of a system. Hmm. So that means it's probably the only place within the whole robot supply chain that we know of that's not seeing deflation. And if you're able to be the player that has pricing power with a, in a deflationary environment where use cases are growing because it becomes better and better value for your customer, mm-hmm. it's a pretty good place to be. So have you been adding to that position? It's a, it's a relatively new position, and we've been, adding oh, okay. to it. we've been adding to it recently. It's a top 10 position in the fund at the moment, so a very, very high conviction idea. And honestly, one of the things we love about the business is the management and how they've run the business. They invest consistently counter-cyclically, so at the moment, as things have been going relatively well over the past few years, they've invested in a software stack called Field. They've invested in new production capacity. So we think if and when things do hit a rough patch, right. Fanuc will be in a position to really capitalize on that and gain market share. I'm just looking at the ADRs here in the U.S. They're up almost 26%, and you're also looking at a pretty hefty dividend. That's right, yeah. So it was a company which at one period of time was notorious for hoarding cash (laughs) and quite symptomatic of the whole of Japan. That's improved quite significantly over the past few years. Tell me also about, we just got about 40 seconds here, Mm C-Trip International. And this is in what, um, online travel agency company? Yeah, it's like a booking.com. It's huge though. It's like 21 billion. Yeah, so it's the number one player in in China with around 80% market share. And it's it's really a... Law of large numbers, right? Law of large numbers, but it's 20 billion is not huge versus the size of the market opportunity that they have. You know, one in 10 people in China have a passport. The penetration rates of uh, online travel agencies versus physical is much lower in China than it is, say, here in the US or, or in Europe. So the so company's got a long runway for growth. And similarly to Fanuc, has been investing in the business quite aggressively over the years. So we see a lot of operating leverage there. Yeah, and that one's up about 40. I'm looking again at the ADR, so 43%. Um, fascinating. Love talking these names. And I know XR is another one, but we'll maybe get into that next time around. Um, safe travels. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for finding time, though, to come into our studio. Really appreciate it. Ben uh, Benish, he's co-portfolio, co-portfolio manager at Pictay Asset Management, and he um, is co-managing the AMG Managers Pictay International Fund. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.